the we're going family style deal. Because I want a bite of your Big Mac. And I need some of your quarter pound. I'll try your filet of fish. There's a deal for every friend group at McDonald's. Order any two classics for just six bucks. Price of participation may vary. Single item at regular price cannot be combined with any other offer. Progressive presents Forest Metaphors. About bundling your home and auto. In sports, three goals is a hat trick. And when you bundle your home and auto with Progressive, you get a hat trick of great savings and round-the-clock protection. So you might be thinking, wait, that's two things. A hat trick is three. But in this metaphor, great savings counts as two goals, and so does round-the-clock protection. So it's like four goals, and that's more than three. It's basic math. Forced Metaphors, presented by Progressive. Bundle and protect today. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Discount not available in all states or situations. And welcome to the Exxon, everyone. I am Rob McConnell, coming to you from our broadcast center and studios in Hamilton, Ontario, Canada. Before I get started tonight, I would just like to take this opportunity of wishing all our members of the Exxon Nation in the United States. Tomorrow is their Thanksgiving, so from everyone up here north of the 49th parallel to you, my friends, down in the great United States of America, a very happy Thanksgiving. If you'd like to send me an email, Exxon, Exxon, and ExxonRadioTV.com on all social media sites, TV. If you'd like to find out about the programming we have available for you on the Exxon Broadcast Network, all you need to do is go to www.xzbn.net. And for the programming on the Exxon TV channel on Simul TV, it's channel 21, www.simultv.com. My guest this hour, Exonation, is Brian Regal. He is an assistant professor of the history of science at Keene University in New Jersey. He is the author of the recent Searching for Sasquatch, Crackpox, Eggheads, and Cryptozoology. Joining me now is Brian Regal. And Brian, welcome to the Exxon. Thank you. Thank you. And, and I'm an associate now. I got promoted. Well, congratulations, sir. Associate <laughs> professor. Uh, tell us, uh, how did you get in, interested in uh, the... Um, into the search for Sasquatch? Well, I, uh, my studies, my formal training is as a historian of science. Right. And uh, my doctoral dissertation was on the life of this guy, Henry Fairfield Osborne, who was a very prominent paleontologist in the late 19th, early 20th century. He was the president of the American Museum of Natural History in New York for a very long right. time. And he had some very interesting views on the relationship between religion and society and evolution. And so I was working on, working on his biography of his life. And as I was studying the relationship between science and religion and politics and society, uh, I started coming across these stories about monsters, and I got rather interested in it. And then I, I came across the life of Grover Krantz, who was an American paleoanthropologist yep. at the University of Washington. And one of the things that historians do is we have this obsession with letters and correspondence and primary sources and documents. And the, the first question we always ask when we're going to research something is, you know, where are the letters, where are the diaries, where are the notebooks? And I had read a lot of works on cryptozoology. And to be perfectly honest, they were mostly pretty horrible. Uh, not well written, not particularly engaging, mm -hmm. not not works that actually went to the historical material. It was mostly, you know, stories upon stories passed down from stories passed down from stories. 
And I thought, you know, it was, it's time that somebody looks into this who's a professional historian. And then I discovered that the uh, Grover Krantz had just recently died right before I started this project. And, but then I found out that his family, his estate, had left all of his very voluminous papers to the Smithsonian Institution. And I discovered that there was this huge cache of material down there, not just on his life, but on the lives and the work of a lot of the major sort of mid-20th century cryptozoology, Bigfoot, Sasquatch, Yeti people. Uh, and so I started looking into it, and the more I looked into it, the more fascinating it became. And uh, next thing I know, I had a book. Wow. But, you know, I can understand the uh, the title, Searching for Sasquatch, about crackpots, eggheads, and cryptozoology. <laughs> yeah, people. a lot of people got, in the cryptozoology community get, got very mad at me over that and sent me lots of angry hate mail. Yeah. Uh, but the reality is I got the, the that title from cryptozoologists themselves. When I was looking through the private letters and notes and and. Uh, writings of some of these major players mm -hmm. like Rennie DeHinden and Grover Krantz and Ivan Sanderson and others, uh, they use those terms. Uh, they, the scientists, they called scientists eggheads. Uh, yes. uh, they called them crackpots. And the, the moment I saw that, I said, bingo, there's my title. It certainly uh, is a, and, a good hook. Yeah, and, and you know, I, I try to explain to people, mm -hmm. I, I, don't, I didn't use those terms in a disparaging way, I, I, I use them almost as terms of endearment. Uh, that these are these are the terms cryptozoologists, especially the people who are looking at anomalous primates like Sasquatch and Bigfoot. That these are the terms they use. These were the expressions they used when they were talking to one another. So tell me, based on the research that you did, does Bigfoot really exist? No, he doesn't. I'm sorry to break that one to you. Oh, no, 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 you know, I no. Give, I, I, give talk, I give talks all the time, and you know, and the first thing I, I do mm. to people, I say, okay, let's just rip this Band-Aid right off now. There, there, there is no Bigfoot. There's no Sasquatch. There's no Yeti. There's yeah. no uh, Loch Ness Monster. There's no Jersey Devil. And, you know, like I, one of my little catchphrases I, I like to use is that it's all fun and games mm -hmm. until the historian shows up. Well, I must tell you this. I've been doing my show for 29 years now, and you vindicated me. <laughs> well, thanks. <laughs> because I have been saying from day one, come on, guys. In the, you know, tw nearly 30 years ago when I started, we didn't have the small little cell phones that had the high-definition cameras and a technology right. was 30 years behind. And every time I get somebody on the show talking about Bigfoot, I say, well, wait a minute. With all the technology that we have available, how come... There is no proof. How come we haven't found a cadaver on the side of the road of Bigfoot? How come right, with exactly. thousands of people going into the woods each and every weekend, you know, they're, they're just like, uh, what do they call these um, part-time warriors? Anyway, they go out there and with all this equipment. They've got all these TV shows, this, that, and the other thing, and there's still no proof. So I've said, come yeah, on. Yeah, I, I, I get into these arguments with, with um, cryptozoology people mm -hmm. all the time. And... The, the thing I, I always say is, if Bigfoot was real, yes. we would not be having this conversation. Right. Because it would, you know, we don't have this conversation about bears. We don't have mm -hmm. this conversation about bald eagles. Uh, they're very rare animals, but we know they, there's, there's really no doubt that they exist. And so if these creatures were real, they would be known, they would be studied. Uh, we really, there really would be no mystery about them.
Right. So, so why do you think that the myth, the legend of of these monsters lived throughout the his, lived throughout history, even to today in today's high tech society? Yeah, um, uh, monster studies go all the way back to the ancient world. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's it's nothing particularly new. I mean, the word cryptozoology is new, uh, but the idea of of people looking or thinking that creatures that we can, for lack of a better expression, call monsters, goes all the way back to Mesopotamia and Egypt and the Greco-Roman world, and a lot of you know one of one of the things that one of the myths about cryptozoology is that somehow scientists and scholars and historians they're they're involved in this you know this grand cabal to keep all this information secret and they don't if you actually look at the history of monsters and the scholarly engagement with monsters that all the way back to aristotle and pliny and aldrovandi uh, and all these guys lysetti they all thought these creatures at least uh, warranted investigations. Right. Uh, even into the 19th century, a, a book that I'm working on, I'm, I'm one of these guys who works on like three different books at once. One of, the, one of the books I'm working on right now is looking at how uh, the, the, the scholarly engagement with monsters helped in part fuel the 19th century discovery of evolutionary biology. I mean, Charles Darwin uh, was interested in monsters, uh, in monstrous births, in, in two-headed babies, and right. strange creatures, because they thought if these creatures were real, they had to fit into the wide range of biological diversity somewhere. Uh, and if they were real, we should know about them, and if they weren't, we should know about that too. And so there is a long uh, uh, program of scientists and scholars archaeologists looking at these creatures. In fact, in the, in the Sasquatch book, uh, I, de- I go into some detail uh, about, uh, for example, with the Minnesota Iceman. Uh, uh, your audience probably would be familiar with this, how the Smithsonian Institution at first thought this thing was real. And they went through a lot of effort to try to find it mm-hmm. and prove it was real. And it was only once they discovered that it wasn't that they dropped, you know, they lost interest in it. Brian, and I so, hate to do this to you, but we've come up to our first break. Great, okay. Great talking to you. Thank you. I've been vindicated. It took 30 years, Exonation, Nation. <laughs> but you heard it right here. I love it. Brian, uh, Brian Regal is our special guest, and he is an associate professor of history of science. And if you'd like to uh, find out more about Brian, sites.google.com forward slash a forward slash keen.edu forward slash Brian dash Regal dash PhD forward slash home. And we're going to have this on the uh, a link uh, from the Exxon Radio TV show. It'll be a lot easier for you, and it'll take you right to Brian's book. We'll be back on the other side of this break as we continue here in the Exxon from our broadcast center and studios in Hamilton, Ontario, Canada. I'm Rob McConnell. Don't go away. Progressive presents Forest Metaphors about bundling your home and auto. In sports, three goals is a hat trick. And when you bundle your home and auto with Progressive, you get a hat trick of great savings and round-the-clock protection. So you might be thinking, wait, that's two things. A hat trick is three. But in this metaphor, great savings counts as two goals, and so does round-the-clock protection. So it's like four goals, and that's more than three. It's basic math. 
Forest Metaphors, presented by Progressive. Bundle and protect today. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Discount not available in all states or situations. Welcome back, everyone. Brian Regal is an associate professor of history at, of science at Keene University in uh, New Jersey. And he's the author of the recently published Searching for Sasquatch Crackpots, Eggheads, and Cryptozoology. And um, once again, Brian, thank you so much for coming on the show and vindicating me after 30 years. My pleasure. Uh, <laughs> I, I've earned my pay for the day. You certainly have, my friend. Uh, tell us a little, before we go on, tell us a little bit about Keene University. Uh, it's a state university here in New Jersey, a four-year liberal arts university with what uh, we like to think is one of the best history departments in the region. Yeah. Um, and, uh, you know, it's an excellent school. We've got about 14,000 students at any given time, uh, and uh, it's a terrific school. Excellent. Um, let's get back to the topic at hand here, uh, you know, the crackpots, the eggheads, and the uh, cryptozoologies. Um so we were talking uh, before we went to the commercial break about what was it, the Iceland man, or the Iceland Minnesota man? Ice man. Mm, right, right. And we have to take our break, so I'm sorry for cutting you off. So can we continue with it? Oh yeah. Well, I was just using that as an example mm -hmm. of you know there is there is this kind of trope within cryptozoology that professional scholars. Right. Uh, denigrate what they do and have no interest in what they do. And the reality is really quite the opposite. And I was using the Minnesota Iceman mm -hmm. story as an example of how when the Smithsonian, when scientists at the Smithsonian Institution mm -hmm. uh, got wind of this thing, they immediately thought it was real and went through quite a bit of effort to try to obtain the body and find out what it was uh, and to study it. And so this idea that 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 scientists are not interested in anomalous creatures or cryptozoological creatures really has no merit to it. Uh, I know lots of biologists and paleontologists and historians and zoologists, and every single one of them would love to think Bigfoot was real. They would love to be able to get one on an uh, on a operating table and dissect it. Uh, and so, you know, the, the, the scientific world would be interested in this. The problem is every time somebody comes along and says, oh, I found a carcass of Sasquatch. Mm -hmm. It's a hoax. Yeah. Uh, every time we, you know, we, we, we get titillated with, oh, here's the latest footage of the Jersey Devil flying around the Pine Barrens, it, you, look, you take one look at it, mm -hmm. and you immediately know it's fake. Right. Tell us about uh, some of the other uh, monsters that you've written about in your book, and, and how do we justify the... the interest even today in these monsters well i think just you know monsters in general because they're strange and they're different and they mm -hmm. can be menacing uh anything like that i think interests human beings i'm not a psychologist so i can't really discuss it in in great learned detail uh but i think human beings are just especially here in the 20s and 21st centuries, we, we are attracted to the weird and the strange and the unusual. And what's more weird and strange and unusual than monsters? I, I know, but 
I, I would have imagined that as we progressed in, in, in knowledge that these fairy tales or these legends would die out and that reality would set in. Yeah, I don't think that's ever going to happen. Uh, as I said before, you know, all the way back to the, the Greco-Roman world, there, yeah. there were scholars uh, and, and naturalists who were interested in these creatures. Uh, and, you know, still to this day, I, and I think they probably always will. Have you seen the, uh, the Patterson-Gimlund film? Uh, yeah, yeah, about a million times. Okay. What, what was your impression when you saw it for the very first time? Well, the first time I saw it, I was a little kid. And I was really quite impressed by it because, mm -hmm. you know, here was film footage of this thing. Yeah. That it looked real. You know, it had a kind of, you know, visceral quality to it. Uh, the, you know, the first time I saw it on, on In Search Of with Leonard Nimoy. Oh, my gosh, yeah. And, and you know, the, that, I'm sure that lots of people who have an interest in the, these topics, mm -hmm. they can trace their initial interest to seeing that. Um, but then, you know, as I got older and I became a little more sophisticated in my thinking, I said, I don't think that's real. That looks fake. Right. Uh, and so, you know, I, I, think it's, I, I think it's fake. You were saying that you, you, you get negative feedback from uh, the believers. When you present the evidence that you have, mm -hmm. why don't they accept that they could be wrong? You know, I've... You know, again, I, I, that's the $64 question, mm -hmm. and I, I, I don't think I can answer it. Um, my, my latest book on the Jersey Devil, I, I give talks, public talks at clubs and, you know, libraries all over the place. And I'll go in, and I got a, I've got a, you know, an hour spiel, and I have slides, and I show, and, and when it's over, um, there's always that, this little thing that happens where people will come up, a few people will come up to you and, you know, shake your hand and yep. say, oh, I really enjoyed your talk, you know, that kind of thing. Thanks for coming. And I think every single time, and I've done this dozens and dozens of times, every single time I give this talk, at least one person will, you know, sort of hang back a little bit. And mm -hmm. when everybody else is kind of gone, they'll come up and they'll say, oh, man, I really liked, you know, this was really interesting. I never thought about it this way, but, you know, I know the Jersey Devil's real because I've seen it. It was, I, I, I saw it in my yard. I saw it, you know, in the woods. Yeah. And part of me, the sort of dark part of me wants to say, you know, no, you didn't. What are you, stupid? But I, I never say that because it would be rude. Uh, but I, what am I going to do? Say, oh, no, you're wrong. Uh, I once had an 83-year-old <laughs> woman come up to me after a talk and, you know, young man. Uh, and, you know, she compliment, complimented me on the talk. And she said, but I know the Jersey Devil's real because I saw it. And, you know, what do I do? I mean, what am I going to stand there and bludgeon an 83-year-old woman intellectually and, you know, tell her she's wrong? And I just say, oh, okay, well, you know, okay. Well, um, I'll tell you something. But, I'm sorry that my mother bothered you that time. I'll, I'll <laughs> certainly try to make sure she doesn't get out of the home anymore. <laughs> but, you know, it, it, I never know what to say mm -hmm. to people when they, when they give me that line because I, was, I didn't see what they saw. Right. But I know they didn't see a 10-foot-tall, hairy biped. I know they didn't see a, an emaciated horse with wings uh, because those things just don't exist. There's no evidence for it. It seems that evidence is one thing that mo uh, every aspect of the paranormal is missing. 
whether it be UFOs, whether it be ghosts, whether it be Bigfoot, the Loch Ness Monster, and the list goes on and on and mm-hmm. on. And yet, ever since the advent of the Internet, more and more people are believing. Now, my opinion, and I'm not a, a scientist, I'm not an associate professor of history and of science at Keene University, I'm just a radio guy. And I look at the Internet as the world's largest septic tank that man has ever created because there's more crap in it than there is anything else. And yet people believe because if it's in the Internet, it has to be real. Right. Well, you know, people, have, there's always been this problem that, well, if it's in a book, it must be mm-hmm. real. If it's, uh, I read it in a magazine. You know, I saw, I saw this picture of this creature in, in Argosy magazine. It must be real. Uh, you know, pictures don't lie. Yeah. The problem is photographs lie all the time. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, you know, I, here at Kane, I, along with my courses on the history of science, technology, and medicine, I also teach a course on the history of pseudoscience, uh, which is very popular. And I use, as examples, I use monsters, I use UFOs, I use ghost hunting uh, as examples for the students to see the history of this kind of thinking. And one of the problems that the students always finally sort of encounter uh, in, in when they do their research for their, their projects for the class is there's no real credible evidence for this. There's yeah. no real credible evidence for the existence of ghosts. There's no real credible evidence for the, the, that, that flying saucers have been visiting the Earth. Mm-hmm. Uh, and there's no real credible evidence for any of these monsters. And, you know, people want to think these are real, and, and, and the problem is they simply aren't. But what is the reasoning behind it? What what are what are they seeking that they are willing to accept these legends, these myths, without having any physical proof? They're well, not- I, I suppose that it it taps into some kind of primordial need we have. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, we all you do, I do. We all have these sort of things we we accept even though there's no evidence for it because it somehow makes us feel better about something. Yeah. Uh, and for some people, believing that flying saucers uh, built the pyramids or that uh, ghosts, you know, you can really talk to your, your dead relatives, that this really happens. And, you know, of, of the people I know, for example, both my parents died. My mother died last year. My father died a few years back. If anybody who I know or knew who now is now deceased, mm-hmm. was going to contact me. It'd be one of them, and it's never happened. Not even close. Yeah. Even even, um, even Harry Houdini sought the same answers. Sure, yeah. right. I mean, we all do, yeah. because we all, you know, one of, the, one of the downsides of this human experience is that we live in this universe which is so intimidating and is so chaotic. Uh, and I think we as humans have as a, 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 an almost a... Uh, an evolutionary defensive mechanism have come up with this idea of, you know, trying to mm-hmm. understand the universe and trying to do something to make us feel like the universe isn't just this black void that once you're dead, you're gone. Uh, I, you know, I was, I was raised a Catholic and I was told by the nuns that you, you know, if you were good, you went to heaven. If you were bad, you went to hell. And I don't really believe that anymore, but deep inside you, you, even the most skeptical sure. of us hope that there's something. All right, stand by, Brian. You and I have to take our news break at the bottom of the hour. Exonation. Nation, Brian Regal is our guest this hour. He's an associate professor of uh, history of science at Keene University in New Jersey. 
And we'll both be back as we continue here in the XO from our broadcast center in Hamilton, Ontario, Canada. Don't go away. Progressive presents Forest Metaphors about bundling your home and auto. In sports, three goals is a hat trick. And when you bundle your home and auto with Progressive, you get a hat trick of great savings and round-the-clock protection. So you might be thinking, wait, that's two things. A hat trick is three. But in this metaphor, great savings counts as two goals and so does round-the-clock protection. So it's like four goals and that's more than three. It's basic math. Forest Metaphors, presented by Progressive. Bundle and protect today. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Discount not available in all states or situations. Welcome back, everyone. I'm Rob McConnell. My special guest this hour is Brian Regal. And Brian is an associate professor of the history of science at Keene University in New Jersey. He's also the author of Searching for Sasquatch, Crackpots, <coughs> Eggheads, and Cryptozoology. I'm sorry, those sound effects aren't in the title. That's my way of saying, <laughs> told you guys. Um, first of all, thanks again for being on the show, and congratulations on your book. Thank you. It's a pleasure. Um uh, could it be possible that a lot of the pseudoscience and the quest for legends and myths and monsters is because, in reality, the moment we are conceived is the moment we start dying. And when we look at the immenseness around us, that people have a hard time accepting that, you know what, here today, gone tomorrow, you're here for a good time, you're not here for a long time. Yeah, sure. Uh, that that that's. I think that's a perfectly reasonable thing. And actually, I think we don't start dying until we hit puberty. Then we start dying. Uh, it all depends on <laughs> what university you go to in, and what in, fraternity. In more ways than one. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but yeah, I, I I think one of the one of the answers to this question mm-hmm. about you know why why are people so sort of enthralled by this is that we want the world to be a little magical. Yeah. You know, we want there to be some mystery. We want to think that there were the giants once roamed North America, you know, human giants, uh, or that there there are lost civilizations like Atlantis or Mu mm-hmm. or, you know, any of the others. Um, and the problem is a lot of that stuff, uh, sometimes we find out it is real. Mm-hmm. Uh, most of the time we don't. Let me ask you something, Brian. Why why did the tale of Atlantis, you know, capture the minds and imaginations of so many based on one single person, Plato? Yeah, it's all Plato's fault. Um, mm-hmm. in a in a in a very relatively small section of a larger book that he writes. Um, we have to remember that when Plato writes the Timaeus, which is the title of his book, he is trying to put every piece of information in the world into one book. That was his goal. And so he had known about this story, this sort of strange story that he had heard from someone who heard it from someone whose uncle told his cousins, whose friend across the street knew the guy down at the bar who heard it from his uncle, whose grandfather, you know, it was one of those deals. Right. 
And he felt, well, this is a piece of information, and if I'm trying to write a book about all the information in the world, I should stick this in here. And so he does. And it really doesn't sort of catch on until the 19th century when a guy named Ignatius Donnelly, uh, who was a Republican uh, senator from, I think, Michigan, either Michigan or Minnesota, uh, decided to write a book about it. And he, he came to believe that, well, if Plato says it's real, it must be real. Uh, and that sort of kicks off the the modern fascination with Atlantis. And the, every once in a while we get these headlines, you know, has Atlantis been found? Mm-hmm. The easy answer to that question every single time is, no, it hasn't. I had, uh, I was speaking to somebody last week who who is a proponent of the hollow earth theory. Mm-hmm. You know, we were it, just talking about this in my pseudoscience class, hollow earth theory. Yeah. <laughs> uh, his name is Brooks Agnew. And uh, he is actually bringing a a consortium together to do mm-hmm. an expedition up to the where he believes the entrance to the hollow earth is. Right, the giant hole in the North Pole. Exactly. And Yeah, well this is this this is something that's been done before. Sure. But why? We know it's not there. We know the earth isn't hollow. Yeah, um, Again, I you know I I wish I could answer that question yeah. for you, and I can't. Well, you know what I you know what I can't understand. Damn it! If it's there, how come Santa Claus hasn't told everybody? Because he flies out well, of the you North know, Pole. Well, that Santa, he's uh, you know he's really he, you you, you got to get him really drunk to get him to tell you anything. I've done it. I've done that. <laughs> You've gotten Santa drunk. Well, yeah. He he loves Jack well, Daniels. He loves Jack uh-huh, Daniels. Yeah, big Jack. Yeah. Well, I've gotten the Jersey <laughs> Devil drunk. He's a he's a big ale fan. <laughs> I love how this uh, conversation's digressing, and then we have to pull it back onto the main road. <laughs> he he loved the Jersey Devil. Loves ale and Springsteen. Well, there you go. Then he's got to be real. Right. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. He's got to be real. And um, what is the significance of, of the of the Jersey Devil? Is he kind of the the um, footprint by which others judge other other monsters, or is he? Is it just because he's just like Bigfoot? A lot of sightings. Yeah, uh, that that's partly it. Uh, the Jersey Devil is probably the oldest Anglo-American monster legend uh, in in North America. And it supposedly dates back to the, the, the a creature that was born of a mother who had sex with a de- with the devil, uh, and this sort of weird, sort mm-hmm. of horsey, winged thing comes out and escapes off into the pine barrens in, in New Jersey. You know, when people think of New Jersey, they tend to think of North Jersey, which is you know the industrial, the oil refineries, and the and the and the big cities, Newark and Elizabeth, yeah. and, and 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 all those. Uh, but the whole southern half of the state is really quite bucolic, uh, quite the opposite of the stereotype. And, and this whole region, from about the middle of the state down to Atlantic City, is basically one huge forest, mm. pine forest, that's called the Pine Barrens. And it's really quite dense in places. And this is where the Jersey Devil supposedly lives. And it's when my co-author Frank Esposito and I decided to start looking into this a few years ago, we said, "Well, let's you know, let's start from scratch." We we threw out all the crap that we found written about it because it was all pretty much crap, uh, with very few exceptions. 
And we began to do what historians do. We went to look for the primary sources. We went, went to look for the letters and right. the correspondence and the, you know, all, all that material. And we began to find a very, very different story that we think was much more interesting uh, than, you know, a, a, a sort of, you know, half-assed forest monster. Mm-hmm. And we, we saw that the Jersey Devil story, it has elements of religious persecution and land grabs and uh-huh. crooked politics and the oppression uh, of outspoken women and all stuff which is still relevant to us today. Uh, you know, the, the idea that women should be in their place and not speak out, and, and the idea of fake news and making up accusations about political rivals that mm-hmm. have no basis in any kind of reality. Uh, and it turned out it was in large part a political story rather than uh, a story of a biological being. Where do government conspiracies and other uh, conspiracy uh, cover-up uh, ideas come from? I think fear. Um, one of the one of the sort of central. If you're going to study the history of conspiracies, just like if you're going to study the history of monsters, what you're really doing is studying the history of human fear and hatred. Oh, I see. Uh, we we project onto these things and we create these elaborate stories. Uh, in order to try to bring some kind of organization to the world. Human beings, love to, we love to organize stuff. We don't like it when things are not organized. Uh, and I think conspiracy theories are ways of taking events which seem to baffle us mm-hmm. and make sense out of them. Oh, okay, this is the reason why. You know, it wasn't one guy shooting from the the school book depository, it was an entire conspiracy of people. Uh, it wasn't some terrorists who hijacked airplanes. It was this huge cabal, probably even within the U.S. government itself, yeah. that did this. And the, I think in the end, the problem with conspiracies like that is that there are conspiracies going on, but these kind of flamboyant things uh, take our attention away from those issues we really should be paying attention to. So how should somebody listening tonight differentiate between the fact and the fiction? Well, it's not easy. You have to put effort into it. You have to study it. You have to look at the material. Uh, you know, that's, that's one of the things that historians do. That's mm-hmm. one of the things scientists do. We go out and we dig up as much evidence as we can, and then we try to analyze it using various uh, intellectual and philosophical techniques, and then try to counter-check things and verify things. Uh, And the problem with most conspiracy theories is people don't do that. They sort of get the Wikipedia view, the superficial view, uh, and some of the stuff can seem fairly legitimate on the surface, but once you begin to, to dig through, right. you realize that it's it, it's something completely different. All right, Brian, stand by. You and I have to take our final break for this uh, this hour. In Dexonation, Nation, our guest this hour is Brian Regal, and he's an associate professor of the history of science at Keene University in New Jersey. He's also the author of a recent uh, book entitled Searching for Sasquatch, Crackpots, Eggheads, and Cryptozoology. 
And Brian and I will be back on the other side of this commercial break as we wrap up this hour here in the Exxon from our broadcast center in Hamilton, Ontario, Canada. And once again, to all our neighbors in the South, in the great United States of America, a very happy and safe Thanksgiving. I'm Rob McConnell. We'll be back. Don't go away. Progressive presents Forest Metaphors about bundling your home and auto. In sports, three goals is a hat trick. And when you bundle your home and auto with Progressive, you get a hat trick of great savings and round-the-clock protection. So you might be thinking, wait, that's two things. A hat trick is three. But in this metaphor, great savings counts as two goals and so does round-the-clock protection. So it's like four goals and that's more than three. It's basic math. Forest Metaphors, presented by Progressive. Bundle and protect today. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Discount not available in all states or situations. Exonation, my guest this hour is Brian Regal, and he is an associate professor of history of science at Keene University. He's also the author of Searching for Sasquatch, Crackpots, Eggheads, and Cryptozoology, which is available on Amazon.com. And you know, Christmas is right around the corner, and uh, this would be an ideal gift for anyone who's interested in the topics that we've been talking about over the past 29 years here in the Exxon. First of all, Brian, I want to thank you ever so much for joining us. Great pleasure talking to you. And um, what are some of the questions when you go out and you do your, your lectures, your speaking engagements, or book signings? What are some of the most frequent questions you get asked by uh, those that you have the opportunity of meeting? Well, I, I always get asked about, you know, is, are these things real? Are they really mm-hmm. real? Uh, that's, the, that's probably the biggest question. Um, I also get a lot of angry hate mail uh, about I've, I write a lot of op-eds on controversial topics like vaccinations and climate change right. and that sort of thing and uh, I always I, I always whenever one of those comes out I always get tons of people uh, telling me that uh, you know I'm a horrible person I I'm a shill for big pharma that's a that's a popular one um, one guy wrote to me once and said well you're just one of these typical liberal college professors and normally I don't even answer that sort of thing. Mm-hmm. Uh, if, if someone writes to me and wants to discuss a topic, you know, in an adult fashion, yeah. I'm happy to do that. But if you start cursing at me, you know, forget it. But uh, I was just in the right mood uh, with this one guy, and I wrote back to him. And I said, sir, I'm not a typical liberal college professor. I'm an outstanding <laughs> liberal college professor. Good for you. Uh, so... <laughs> Uh, you know, I, I get a lot of uh, you know I get a lot of stuff uh, where people say you know I, I I never really thought of this this way and you know I really enjoyed your book and you know it, it it can be really satisfying especially when some like high school kid writes to me and says oh I I just read your book on the Jersey Devil and you know now I want to be a historian just like you wow uh, 
you know, it's like, I'm not crying. You're the one who's crying. Uh, so <laughs> it, 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 is a it is a fantastic job. I love what I do. Uh, I I get up in the morning. I can't wait to go and teach my classes and go to the, live in the library. You know, I travel around the world a lot, mostly going to libraries. And I go to libraries for vacation the way some people go to Disneyland for vacation. Uh, and I, it, it's just a, I the topic is fascinating. Mm-hmm. I think I have some interesting things to say about it, and I hope that. The, the books that I write will inspire people to continue to investigate. You know, um, I'm not against paranormal investigation. Uh, I'm actually for people going out and trying to find monsters. Uh, a lot of people think that's strange. Uh, but this is the way we find out about the world. Right. And most modern science uh, came about because people were looking for weird and wacky stuff, and instead they discovered biology. You know, they discovered the way the heart works. Uh, they discovered that the earth goes around the sun. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so this is the way we advance human knowledge. So uh, I'm, I'm not against ghost hunting or any of these other things. Well, my question to the uh, ghost hunter says, all right, well, what are you going to do when you find a ghost? What happens? Does the para industry that is, you know, uh, that is generating billions of dollars now, is that going to cease to exist? Do you really think that if evidence would be ever found that you could actually get it out there before the men in black snapped it from you and you know I... yeah well i what i what i want to know about <laughs> about ghost hunting is why do ghosts always seem to dress like victorians mhm you never see nope. a ghost in a toga you know or uh you know in 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 african tribal yep. garb they're always white europeans in victorian clothes there must or be civil a, war guys. Exactly. There must be an expiry date on them somewhere that we mm-hmm, just haven't mm-hmm. seen yet. Right. Yeah. And and you know why don't we ever see Hindu ghosts? Why don't mm-hmm. we ever see Jewish ghosts or Muslim ghosts? Why are there always Christian ghosts? Uh, and you know, so the ghost hunters they got a lot to answer for. But, but it's got to be true. It's 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 on <laughs> television and it's on the internet. Like. Yeah. Well. I guess uh, I guess these last 20 years I've been just wasting my time. <laughs> Not in my books, pal. I think you're doing one hell of a great job. Uh, what's next for you? Uh, well, the book I'm working on, the, the, the book that just came out is the book on the Jersey Devil, The Secret mm-hmm. History of the Jersey Devil. Uh, and that's also available at Amazon and, you know, pretty much everywhere. Um, the book I'm working on now is a book on the myths and legends about who in quotation marks, really discovered America? Well, this is a question that I bring up all the time, because I, it wasn't Christopher Columbus, was it? Probably not. Okay, so why are we still teaching the kids in school that he's the person who discovered North, uh, North America? We, when we know that the Vikings were here before Columbus, the Irish monks yeah, we, were here. We, we know pretty yeah. sure, not, we... We're pretty sure Leif Erikson didn't come to America, mm-hmm. but the the physical, the archaeological evidence, the textual evidence, uh, seems pretty clear that yes, Norse um, explorers, the, the the people we normally call Vikings, although right. nobody called them Vikings when they were around, that's a 19th century invention. Uh, but that, that yeah, they did come to North America, uh, probably Nova Scotia. Um, before Columbus, but there are, there are also legends about Portuguese fishermen, sure. about um, 
Prince Madoc, the Welsh, the runaway Welsh prince. There are legends about Fusang, the Chinese explorer who may have gotten to the west coast of Canada. Uh, so there's, there's lots of really interesting legends about this. And what I'm interested in is, is, is less who really discovered America. It doesn't really matter who the first one was here. Uh, but what I'm interested in is why do these particular stories come up at the times they come up, and how are they keyed into the kind of political milieu of the day? Uh, and you know why do why do people, despite the fact that there's no evidence for, why do people think, or why did people think in the 19th century that that Leif Erikson came to America? Uh, I think that says a lot about our society. Uh, there's even, I've even heard stories about Egyptian artifacts being found in the Grand Canyon. Yeah, pretty much yeah. any classical ancient civilization have been, you know, tapped and said, oh yeah, we found Egyptian stuff in Minnesota, man, mm -hmm. and there's, well, there were Roman coins found in the Mississippi, man, so that means, you know, it's it, pretty much anybody, Mesopotamians, uh, Babylonians, African explorers, Chinese explorers, the, they, they've all been at one time or another put forward as, you know, the real discoverers of America. So that's what I'm writing about right now. Well, good, good for I, you. I, I'm, I'm up to my eyes in original documents. Well, good for you. We'd love to have you back on to discuss that book when, you're, uh, when it's out and sure. published where your listeners can buy it. Uh, it. It seems that as long as you can find something that you can embellish into this wonderful, great story. It's, you know, it's a free marketplace out there. Sure, I mean, the, the idea, the, the ancient alien concept mm -hmm. is a real glaring example of this. Uh, there, are, there are a huge number of really excellent archaeologists out there, and we know so much about the ancient Egyptians. Yes. Uh, mostly from the ancient Egyptians. Mm -hmm. You know, they were literate, they wrote, they, they wrote that. We, we have whole books practically on how they built the pyramids. It's really not much of a mystery. Uh, yet, you know, the, the idea that, that, that spaceships came down and lost white races came along and did this for them because, you know, dark-skinned people couldn't possibly have built these pyramids on their own, uh, it's really quite baffling. Hey, what, are, what still gets me laughing is the pictures of a... Caucasian Jesus with blonde hair and blue eyes. Oh, well, don't even get me started on that. Oh, come on. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> you know, white Jesus. You yeah. know. <laughs> Somehow. But, uh, you know, that's the, uh, the, the, the same people who, you know, will scream about Arabs and refugees. Uh, who do you think Jesus was? He was an Arab refugee. Exactly. Uh, who did not speak English. He wasn't a Christian. He was Jewish. Yeah. Uh, you know, it, it's, uh, I, this sort of stuff makes me wish sometimes that I had studied psychology rather than history, <laughs> uh, because the, the way the human brain works is really fascinating. Actually, I think the work that you're doing is much more worthwhile than trying to understand the people who don't believe <laughs> in the real story. Listen, we've got about a minute left. Uh, what are your final thoughts for the listening members of the Exonation around the world tonight? If you're interested in this, anything in the paranormal, by all means, go ahead and research it. But learn some research techniques. Learn how to go look at it through archives and study the original documents. And, you know, if you, if you want to study who built the ancient Egyptian pyramids, learn to read hieroglyphics. Learn to read Arabic. Uh, learn to read the languages that these people 
express their ideas in, and you'll find it's way more fascinating than any of this ancient astronaut stuff. Uh, and you'll, you'll learn a lot more, and your, your brain will grow, and the world will be a better place. Because fact is way stranger than fiction. Right. Brian, once again, I want to thank you so much for joining us. Continued success. Well, thanks for having me on. Well, we'll have you back on in the future. That is a promise. And Dixon Nation, our guest this hour is, has been Brian Regal. He is an associate professor of history of science at Keene University in New Jersey. And uh, one of the books that we've been talking about tonight is Searching for Sasquatch, Crackpots, Eggheads, and Cryptozoology. All of Brian's books are available on Amazon.com. I'll be back on the other side of this commercial break with the news as we continue here in the Exxon from our broadcast center and studios in Hamilton, Ontario, Canada. Now, if you want to send me a hate mail, you know, I'm used to that. The email address is exxon at exxonradiotv.com. And for all the programming that we have on the Exxon Broadcast Network, xzbn.net, and on Channel 21, the Exxon TV channel, on SimulTV, simultv.com. We'll be back. Don't go away. Progressive presents Forest Metaphors about bundling your home and auto. In sports, three goals is a hat trick. And when you bundle your home and auto with Progressive, you get a hat trick of great savings and round-the-clock protection. So you might be thinking, wait, that's two things. A hat trick is three. But in this metaphor, great savings counts as two goals, and so does round-the-clock protection. So it's like four goals, and that's more than three. It's basic math. Forced Metaphors, presented by Progressive. Bundle and protect today. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Discount not available in all states or situations. Hi, I'm Flo from Progressive. Being a baseball fanatic like me can be stressful. It's not all sports points and touchdowns. So Progressive is going to help you take your mind off your team for a moment. Instead of thinking about how they missed that goal point score, think about the Name Your Price tool from Progressive letting you choose coverage options based on your budget. Unlike your team that missed the end zone net area. Well, anyway, hope this distraction about Progressive's Name Your Price tool was helpful. It sure kept me from thinking about all those penalty balls. Yay, sports! Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. 